Welcome to Charlotte Mason Says. I'm John Schindel, here with my wife, Crystal. Join us as we read and discuss the home education series. So we come around to the point we started from, and I've touched on this earlier. What is left for education to do? So if all of these things are already there, what can we do? So she leads into a thing of three or four ways for the vote of do nothing. One, well, the father did it, so he's going to do it. So it's taken as a fact not to help it, not to hinder it. Or you see or hear the um, character traits, whether it's good or bad, and you take no pains to develop it. She uses the example here of having an ear for music and... A child who has a proclivity for hearing and reproducing music, but no particular pains are taken to develop talent. So this mm-hmm. this kid is ha- gifted in something. Is gifted, but that's where it ends. Mm-hmm. Or the boy is shows a want of reverence, and so the parents come down with the the iron fist, and so he finds other ways of they repress being it, irreverent. and he acts out. Yeah, and so that's. That was number three. That was number three. And then the fourth is more of a physical tendency. You know, you have a tendency to lung trouble. So this habit of delicacy. So the, the precautions are taken so that it doesn't develop into a hereditary tendency. Yeah, I wasn't quite sure what to do with that fourth example. The first three made a lot of sense to me, but that's okay. And then the, the fifth one is the parents who see the hereditary defects and put them down to natural fault. They see what their children are doing wrong and go, well, that's just natural. They believe it's not their part to remedy. Mm -hmm. Which goes back to the parents as the school teacher, schoolmaster, 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 parents as the schoolmaster where you're not teaching your child to sit up straight. So you're relying on someone else to do that for you. Except of course, when, when it's disturbing, when it's disturbing, when the natural fault and corruption of the nature of which every man naturally is engendered. That is, unless the boy's fault be of the disturbing kind, a violent temper, for example. When the mother thinks no harm to whip the offending Adam out of him. I, I like that phrase. Whip the offending Adam. We just finished Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where they're sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. So it's, it's cool. <laughs> I just, I like that phrase. <laughs> so this is, then she, she touches on... A, a disconnect in beliefs of Christian parents, uh, some Christian parents, where we believe that the laws of spiritual life have been revealed. We should also believe that the laws by which the body, the mind, and moral nature flourish and decay have been revealed to us as well. And so it behooves us to know science, not just bring them up by the light of nature, where the authoritative revelation fails. If you do that, it's to their irreparable loss. Mm-hmm. Those are hard words. She didn't pull punches. No. When she's talked about that any number of times, again, like any number of things we've talked about already, she's talked about that any number of times where she's said the science is important. It's good to know what the science is. It's good to keep up with current times. And the science does not contradict the the Holy Spirit and it does not contradict 
God. Right. As long as we're not seeking the answers to those ultimate questions, as the way she phrased it, as long as science is not what we're using to define our faith and belief system, Mm -hmm. science is a tool that God has given us. Nature is a tool that God has given us to understand this world we live in. And the more we understand it, the more we can glorify him. Because the more we the more we get it, the more we see how just how how insane it is. Cause cause it gets crazy. The more you figure out. So it's important for us as parents, it's especially important as for us as Christian parents to not decry the science, to not ignore the science, but also not let the science rule our lives. Well, like she said, another place, you know, it's give it 50 years or so. Yeah, there is that. Which, by the way, I saw another article that said that a super low cal or super low carbohydrate diet is good for you to go against the article that said that a super low carbohydrate diet leads to heart failure. It's hilarious. It just keeps going. Oh, okay. <laughs> so anyway, moving on. There's another quote here. You want to know what she's quoting? Where Where is the quote? On page uh, 75. Oh, you're, you're going ahead of, in the kingdom are the children? Yep. You're jumping ahead of the gun here. How am I jumping ahead of the gun? That's the next paragraph. I have the first sentence highlighted. Fine. Go ahead. <laughs> I don't have anything. I have the last sentence highlighted. I have the first one highlighted. And uh, so if the race is advancing, it is along the lines of character for each new generation inherits and adds to the best that has gone before it. If we're truly investing in our children and we're truly trying to teach them character, then all of the lessons from our parents that our parents were trying to truly invest in us and teach us character, we're going to pass those along to our children and they're going to grow beyond where we grew. That is the hope. So the hope is that our children will be of a higher character than we are and that their children will be of a higher character than their children or than, than they are. Goes back to that generational loss. The, the, yeah. There, the, there's, there are things that each generation will emphasize to their children yeah. because of a perceived lack or uh, from their learning or that they see that their, their children need. And something's going to get left behind. Yeah. It's just like you can't teach everything. Well, and we've talked about, we've talked about, it's been a while, but we talked about the, the upward and downward spiral spiral of societies where the only way to fix a society as a whole is through the children and yep. through the children's children. And we need to start that upward spiral because we've been in a downward spiral now. Children have always been lovely, even in Jerusalem. And you know who she's quoting there? I'm going to go with Jesus. She's quoting herself. (laughs) (laughs) So Charlotte Mason also wrote a collection of poems called The Savior of the World. And this is from Of Such is the Kingdom, The Disciple, which is volume four, book four, poem L-V-I-I-I. 28? 50. What's L? Is L-50? I... We've talked about <laughs> Roman numerals now. What is L? I don't know. So anyways, she she wrote this this poem and yep. quoted herself, which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> Good job. Good job, Charlotte Mason. <laughs> I need to find a quote that emphasizes this. Hey, why don't I wrote a, write a poem for it? Okay, great. I'll just write it. <laughs> Here's the quote. 
Now I'm going to publish it over here. <laughs> Look, guys, I'm quoting that thing. <laughs> anyway, I, I thought that was funny. So there's the quote and this are probably... I'm going to give her the benefit of the doubt and say that she wrote them not at the same time because that would be hilarious. I'm guessing she wrote the poem first. But it would be hilarious. Man, I need this to really land. I need a quote. I'm just going to make one up. <laughs> this, she goes on. It is the age of child worship. I don't think she's talking about her time anymore. I think we're talking about our time now. I feel like it's the age of fur child worship. Move beyond. Yeah. Do we really care about our children now as a mass society? Very lovely are the well brought up children of Christian and cultured parents. But alas, how many of us degrade the thing we love? Think of the multitude of innocents to be launched on the world, already mutilated, spiritually and morally, at the hands of doting parents. Mutilated. Again, with those punches, she is not pulling. So she contrasts this in the next sentence with duteous. Mm -hmm. And so I looked up doting and dutiful, or duteous, and duteous means you are dutiful. So I looked up dutiful. Full of duty. Exactly. Doting is extremely and uncritically fond of someone adoring uncritically fond interesting and dutiful is conscientiously or obediently fulfilling one's duty which we've gone into length about the duties of parents in previous chapters so that you have the doting parents and the duteous parents and the duteous parents set themselves to nourish and cherish the lovely family traits mm -hmm. in their children as a gardener, the peaches he means to show uh, goes back to in chapter six at the very beginning. She says parents in their highest function as revealers of God to their children to bring the human race family by family, child by child out of the savage and inhuman desolation where he is not into the light and warmth and comfort of the presence of God. That is the parent's duty and the parent and the parent's highest function. So I'm now I have to go look. I think it was earlier that I was. I, yeah, I mean, that's she said uh, in the last chapter introduced that thought. So that was chapter six. She references chapter five. I'm pretty sure in chapter five, uh, it is as revealers of God to their children that parents touch the highest, their highest limitations. That's chapter five. Oh, and Dr. Maudsley talked about heredity. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a common thread. So then we know how that kiss made me a painter warmed into life the art faculty the child had this is a cute story benjamin west he ended up being the his the history painter to king george the third one of the most celebrated artists of his day he was babysitting his little sister and while his mom was out he found some bottles of colored ink and proceeded to paint her portrait by the time his mom returned Ink blots stained the table, the chairs, and the floor. His mother surveyed the mess without a word until she saw the picture. Picking it up, she exclaimed, exclaimed, Why, it's Sally! And she bent down and kissed her young son. She is a woman of greater character than I. So, by that kiss, my mother's kiss made me a painter. Her encouragement did far mm. more than a rebuke could ever have done. I can see that. So. Because you can talk about how let's try and 
let's try and keep it on the page. But the first thing she said was, it's beautiful. Yeah. And thank you for expressing this. Yeah. And we can talk about the mess later. We can figure that out. Yeah. Interesting. Pains were taken with the rearing of the children. So I, I guess I guess a point to belabor there, and one that I need to remember, is that the status of the house, the status of the physical house, is not as important as the works of art or the intention behind what the child is doing. More than that, the the things around are not as important as the child and their soul. Uh, yes. Yeah. And how a a look or a word can either build them up or crush them. Mm-hmm. Another example that I've I've heard is the child who is trying to pour a glass of milk and they drop the gallon of milk because it's heavy. And does the mother immediately rebuke the child and yell at the child and oh you made this massive mess for me to help clean up or or for me to clean up and why'd you even do that and why'd you try that? Which, in which case the child's going to retreat into themselves and be like, well, I'm never mm-hmm. going to try that again. Versus the mother who says, oh, you made a mess. Here, help me clean it up. This is how you clean up. Mm-hmm. Let's fill this gallon up with water and let you go outside and figure out how to pour a cup of water. Mm-hmm. And that encourages them and builds them up and gives them the confidence. And it's so much power that, that we as parents and as people who work with children wield. Yeah. Where we can make or break these children. It's how we've helped all of our children learn how to drink out of cups. We put them in the bathtub and give them cups. And then they drink the bath water. Which is gross, but... We kind of try to tell them... I, I try to tell them not to drink the water. Well, okay. So we tell them not to drink the water. But but that they've all done it. You, you, you fill the cup with water and you put it up to your mouth and you practice drinking. And it splashes all over your face because you don't know what you're doing. You don't know how to create that seal with your bottom lip which I learned is a good thing for children to learn how to do when they're young. Is That's a great oral skill to know. It helps with speech, is how to form a seal around a cup. I didn't know that. Some Instagram post that someone made. <laughs> like, oh, cool. I'm helping my children learn how to talk good by learning them how to drink out of a cup. Now, that's, that's, that is, that, it's interesting and it's, and it's very true. We definitely have the power to crush our children and to crush their dreams and their ability to do things. So moving on? Yeah. So moving on to the next section, distinctive qualities ask for culture. And the first thing I have highlighted here is, in the children, special culture is demanded. And providing for it these four things, nourishment, exercise, change, and rest. And we're going to go through each of those things. Or she goes through each of those things individually. She does it out of order. I noticed that. Nourishment, exercise, change, and rest. And she talks about exercise, nourishment, change, and rest. Well, what is it? Huh? So exercise, the example running through all of this, all all four of her examples, is a child who has a great turn of language. His grandfather knew nine languages, and this little fellow can say his Latin declinations before he's five. So... What's the mother to do with something like this? Where this is a clearly a talent, a gift. And she said, you know, let, it, let him learn it. And w- let him learn it when he wants. It, they probably come just as easily as Seesaw Marjorie Daw, which is a nursery rhyme. And a kind of creepy nursery rhyme. All nursery rhymes are creepy. That's true. 
Why do we tell our children creepy nursery rhymes? I don't know. It's creepy. That's the one I was playing for you while you were playing last night. Oh, that was that was just wrong. (laughs) That was uh, oh man. Yeah, creepy. Gosh, so I'm playing I'm playing Xbox with my brothers and and she starts this thing. It sounds like the Teletubbies theme. And oh man, I oh it was it was like spine chillingly However Oh man. Made me want to kill things. Which I, I then failed at because I was playing terribly last night. So she she says, you know, that the nursery rhymes are the wholesomer thing for the child as opposed to the Latin. <laughs> yeah. making a face yeah that's wholesome okay <laughs> so so what, i think what she's really saying is typical age yeah. appropriate yeah. things are more wholesome well and it's, but, and it's but that's not to say don't let them go beyond if they have a talent for it sure well and it's easy to learn the sing-songy rhymey stuff it just is uh, we're, we're we're made for that but for this kid it's easy enough to learn his Mensa from his nurse and know his declinations before he's five. He knows those things, even though he just just as well as he knows Seesaw Marjorie Daw. And it, the nourishment part, let him do it as much as he wants. Never urge, never applaud, never show him off. Let the words convey ideas as he can bear them. And this quote about the day's eye and the eye of the day mm-hmm. comes from... Jeffrey Chaucer. Oh, okay. I know that name. He is the father of English language. So this is from the... Oh, where did it go? The Legend of the Good Woman prologue. Talking about flowers. So she's quoting that. Anyway, she's talking about how... Let him feel that the common words we, we use without a thought are beautiful. And it's not just that the higher things that he can do are good and beautiful, but... Even the dandelion, the magpie, the buttercup, the daisy. They have their own ideas. I, I, I wrote down, we need to emphasize the beauty of the things. I can't read my own writing here. Uh, we need to emphasize the beauty of the things our children have a natural inclination towards. But also we need to emphasize the beauty of the normal things. Like you said, not just the biggest and the best things, but mm-hmm. the little things too. So when she talks about more about ideas and we can go back to page 34, page 39 and page 45 about almost the specific thing. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to go back there. Yeah, no, that's okay. We can skim over it. And then the next thing is a change. Mm -hmm. You need something else, something totally unrelated to language. Mm -hmm. First, make sure he knows those outdoor things that nature nature study. Right. Make sure he knows that stuff. Because it's delightful, this common acquaintance with natural objects, and also give him something to do with his hands. Well, and how many, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tangent here, how many studies are there coming out that especially boys need to be outside? And I don't, I don't know of any, any legitimate studies off the top of my head, but we see boys' grades declining in schools at the same time we see recess and outside time declining. And we talk about the need to be outside. And even as adults, we talk about the the healing nature of being outside and just how good outside is. Mm-hmm. So giving our children a love for outside is going to be great for them for the rest of their lives. So sorry, quick aside there. So outside and something with his hands, working in material. Mm-hmm. And she goes with the, the sane part. 
It's a uh, it's opposed to his natural bent. It's one way of keeping a quite sane mind in the presence of an absorbing pursuit. It, it balances you. Yeah. And then you need to rest. And that's not changing. That's not doing the different work. That's actually resting. Mm-hmm. A game of romps, nonsense talk, a fairy tale, or to lie on his back in the sunshine. And she specifically says, not a game with laws and competitions. Mm. Just a game of romps. What? There, go, there go all of my games. What is romps? Just going out and playing. As opposed to a structured sport. Okay. And that's how I read it. That makes sense. And, and it goes back to the, the decline of neighborhood play. Yeah, that's, that's where, absolutely where true. Where a game of pickup basket or pickup baseball used to happen. Mm-hmm. And now it's scheduled and it's at the field with yeah. a ref or ref umpire. with an umpire. And and I, I think it's that that difference that she's talking about there. I used to go outside and hack at the weeds with sticks and pretend that I was sword fighting. Fight the bad guys was the game that I played all the time. Why were there bad guys? I don't know. They're there. They need to be fought. And I have a stick to fight them. So then she goes into some scientific talk about the brain, and I chose not to do any research into this. I don't want to do research into this. I'm not quite entirely sure of what her rationale is here. It would be an interesting study to do because I know there's been there have been a lot of brain studies and brain scanning people as they learn things and do stuff. I think the biggest point here that she gets into is in the second paragraph here. We all know how done up we are after giving our minds for a few hours or days to any one subject, whether anxious or joyous. We are glad at last to escape from the engrossing thought and find it a weariness when it returns upon us. I can attest to that for for work purposes. If I am engrossed and engaged in a thing for work, it's always great to, after a couple hours, get up and walk away. Mm-hmm. As awesome as that thing might be, or as laborious and painful as that thing might be, either side of the spectrum, it's great to be able to just get up and walk away from it for a couple minutes and refocus and recenter and, I don't know, play a game of ping pong or eat a bonbon or just... Eat a bonbon? I don't know. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> where are you getting these bonbons i don't know there's a bunch of people that bring a bunch of random stuff into the offices that i work at so i might so be eating just, bonbons just a little bit about what she the science that she's saying is basically she's saying the tissues just get used up mm-hmm. and so if you use up more than you allow to replenish that exhausts you and mischief will happen and the replenishing happens while you're at rest and so if if this is happening either too hard of lessons or the excitement of ten- attending childish dissipations, if this is happening too much, then it's not good with, without the rest. Right. So there is a, there's a balance to be struck is what she's talking mm-hmm. about. And whether the science holds true that your brain deteriorates or not. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. She didn't have MRIs back then to know that. But the point still stands that there has to be a balance of work and rest. Well, and she brings up Hamlet from from Shakespeare, how his thoughts 
constantly stay on those couple of things. And basically, he goes partially insane. He is not entirely sane. He becomes eccentric. I listened to, here we go, another Joe Rogan interview where he interviewed uh, the Tesla guy, Elon Elon Musk. Musk. He interviewed Elon Musk. And Elon Musk talked about how he was talking about how his brain is always working and he's always got ideas and he's always got things that he's thinking about. And and he has a hard time switching his brain off. He's always thinking about crazy new things that he could do and new inventions and innovative things that are, that are going on. And if you look at what Elon Musk's company does, and I can't come up with it off the top of my head, but if you look at all of the random things that they've come up with and they're doing, they're digging tunnels under New York. They're flying people to space. They came up with an electric car. Like those are those are wildly unrelated things. Wildly unrelated things. SpaceX. SpaceX, thank you. But that's not the only one. There's SpaceX, there's Tesla, there's the underground drilling thing. Like the the dude is all over the place. And that was one of the things he said is he he can't find a moment to rest. And the dude is is super eccentric. He's a, he's a strange man, a, a great man, a, a great scientist, a great thinker, a great inventor, but, but he's got some quirks to him. So I, I think it's, it's very important to allow your brain to rest and to find a way to let your brain rest. Eccentric is unconventional or slightly strange. And, and I, I would say just in and of itself, eccentricity is not a bad thing, but she's using the word to highlight the antithesis of what she's hoping for. Eccentricity. The dangers of eccentricity. Possibly eccentricity is a danger against which the parents of well-descended children must be on the watch. The balance between their qual their accentuated qualities and other qualities are lost and mr matthew arnold you remember who he is no he is the one who had the phrase education is an atmosphere a discipline a life oh he's the the editor oh oh he was the inspector the school inspector Inspector. he was the school inspector he was a school inspector who was an artist or something poet poet yeah which is a crazy juxtaposition Except apparently everyone likes poetry. Juxtaposition. Did I use that word correctly? I don't know. The fact of two things being seen or placed close together with contrasting effect. Look at me using $10 words at almost midnight. Woo! Juxtaposition. (laughs) So Mr. (laughs) Matthew Arnold writes down the life and the work of a poet as ineffectual. And this is the verdict passed upon the eccentric. So whatever force of genius, character, lovely moral traits they might have, the world will not take them as guides for good unless they do as others do and things lawful and expedient. So basically, what I was coming (laughs) up to was be somewhat normal so people take you seriously. I.e. have good character. Be balanced. Even if you're eccentric as all get out, be a person of character. You might be a strange person of character, but be a person of character. And don't allow your your one unbalanced thing to be way out there. As Sun Tzu says, know thyself. Sure. You have to know where your eccentric 
inclinations lie so that you don't allow yourself to fall into those habits of eccentricity. Which is why parents are on the watch for it before children can do that for themselves. Right, because as children grow and learn, they'll they'll learn to self-reflect. If they've been taught how, they'll learn to self-reflect and they'll learn to know themselves so that they can see when that starts happening so that they can veer away from it. Yep. And so she goes into some examples. The mother noticing in her most promising child little traits of oddity. He wants a confidant. And if... If nobody understands him, nobody wants him, he will curl up in on himself and take a slice of life and eat it with a snarl all by himself. But if the mother can get to him, she will preserve for the world one of its saving characters. Depend upon it. There is something at work in the child. Genius, humanity, poetry, ambition, pride of family. It is that he wants outlet and exercise for an inherited trait almost too big for his childish soul. Hmm. It, it's, it's along the lines of helping children deal with huge emotions. Yeah. Where they, they're acting out, but they don't know why or what's driving that. And that's, that's there for the mother to figure out and to, yeah. to direct. And then she talks about Rosa Bonheur. Mm-hmm. I'll butcher that name. She's French. Uh, she, yeah, so therefore I'm butchering her name because we all know how badly I butcher French. She was observed to be a restless child whose little shoes of life were a misfit. Lessons did not please her and play did not please her. And her artist father hit on the notion of soothing the child's divine discontent by apprenticing her to a needlewoman. Happily, she broke her bonds and we have her pictures. Okay. When I first read this, I thought... He did good by apprenticing her to a needlewoman. Did she not? Is that what you thought? No. Why would I think that? Clearly, that's not what... No. She has artist, her artist father, italicized. So it was a bad thing. So she was... At school, she was often disruptive, and she was expelled from numerous schools. Oh, 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 oh. He, he gave her bonds by apprenticing her to a needlewoman... Happily, yes. she broke that bond and yes. we have her pictures now because yes. she was an artist just like her father. Yes. Oh, goodness. So after a failed apprenticeship with a seamstress at the age of 12, her father undertook to train her as a painter. And her father allowed her to pursue her interest in painting animals by bringing live animals to the family studio for studying. Wow. Sounds like the Lion King. <laughs> Goes on. She was she was very a very well-known artist and she has a picture at the met right now really yeah and you know she's she died in 1899 one year too early she almost made it to 1900 yeah so so (laughs) what i it it threw me i i thought that the father was like oh i i have this great thing let's do a seamstress work and i'm going wait what so it could have been a good thing though yeah, I, I think it could have been. But it wasn't the right thing for her. Exactly. And she didn't find it. So I when I read that, I thought, you know, she did needlework pictures. That's what I thought, too. But as I read it just now, I was going, needleworker, and now her pictures. I mean, my mother did some cross-stitching. Maybe she's the... the maybe, maybe she pioneered cross-stitch. I think that's been around for a very, very, very long time. Yeah, I, I know. But, 
But he finally found the right thing. Yeah. And she brought her her genius, her talent mm-hmm. to the world. And it goes into this phrase, noblesse oblige. He must needs add honor and not dishonor to a distinguished family. Going back to, I, I name dropped the uh, Ben Shapiro podcast a little early. I, I meant to name drop it earlier here. Arthur Brooks, who had that conversation with Ben Shapiro, which if you didn't, if, you, if you're not a listener of Ben Shapiro, I, I highly suggest you listen to that interview. It was fascinating. One of the things he talked about as one of the problems with the welfare state in America right now is that when we give money to help people, we don't, when we give money, we don't give value. So people who are on the welfare system are living in a state where they have no, where they bring no value to society. And so they're in a bad place emotionally and physically because this, this noblesse oblige is not being met. He's not adding honor but he's adding dishonor to his family. And she goes, she goes on to talk about it later with the dreariness of a dreariness of a motiveless life. But that's one of the things that, that Arthur Brooks and Ben Shapiro talk about is that the way to solve the welfare state and the way to help people achieve anything is to help them find something of value. I was listening to uh, a Joe Rogan interview where he's interviewing Peter Hotez, who is a, he's a professor. He's a vaccine proponent, really smart guy. He's a scientist, but anyway, he has an autistic daughter and he was saying that their autistic daughter had trouble and she was, she, she's very autistic and she had issues and issues and trouble and trouble. And finally, they were able to get her a job working with the Salvation Army at one of the Salvation Army stores. And she's there and she sorts clothes. And that's a job. And she does it. He didn't say the, the times and he didn't say the hours she works. But, but he's saying she has purpose now. And she's a part of a group. And her enjoyment of life has skyrocketed since getting this job. Because she is she's providing a service for society. She's doing something of value. So now her life has value because she is a valuable individual in her own eyes. And so looking at what Arthur Brooks was saying and looking what this guy Peter Hotez was saying about his daughter is when we can add value to the society around us is when we perceive that we have value in and of ourselves. Reminds me of another, it was a man who who had trouble functioning in society, couldn't really hold down a full-time job. It didn't work, but he had maps in his head. Like you tell him where you're at and he can tell you where to get somewhere Hmm. like a, a, a internal GPS Google maps type thing. That's awesome. So he got a job with the city's, I think, 411 or something like that. Nice. So when people call and have questions about, you know, how do I get here or what's there? And, that's what he can answer. That's what he can do. That's cool. And so that was his job. And that's a huge service. Yeah. It's a random service. And again, it, it was, I heard about this any number of years back, but that's how he lived his life mm-hmm. was through that viewpoint. And he was able to use that specific viewpoint to benefit society. Interesting. 
but yeah, so so we need to we need to be able to find that value, and so that's one of the things that we do as parents is try to help our children find something of value to do in the home. Mm-hmm. So then it also rests amongst the immediate causes of eccentricity is the dreariness of daily living, which happens to all of us every so often, but often with deadly weight upon the more finely strong and the highly gifted. Mm-hmm. And it rests with parents to see that this doesn't settle on any of their children. We are made with a yearning for the fearful joy of passion. And if this doesn't come to us in lawful ways, we'll look for it in eccentric or illegitimate courses. Mm -hmm. Back to the example from earlier that we talked about. What do you do when you don't have opportunity? It comes in bad ways instead Um, of good ways. and, And you as a child and you as a person seek out opportunity regardless of if it's legitimate or not. So this quote is from Wordsworth. The title of the poem is Lines composed a few miles above Tenturn Abbey on revisiting the banks of the Wye during a tour. July 13, 1798. It's a fascinating title. I wonder where you wrote that. That's the title. (laughs) I thought that was funny. That's awesome. So the more sensitive and the more gifted, I guess, he is the more apt he is to to be troubled by the weights of the world. It says, fill him with the enthusiasm of humanity. The thing best worth living is to be of use, was well said lately by a thinker who has left us. The only quote I could find of for this, for this thinker that has left us, was again, Mr. Matthew Arnold. Interesting. Which was quoted by Miss Kitching, who was the secretary at the House of Education, which was part of the the PNEU, which was mm-hmm. Charlotte Mason stuff. She was basically second in command, but she also references Arnold in this same essay. So it's strange that she so it, would... it's strange that she would reference him as Matthew Arnold and then reference him as the thinker who has left us. Maybe she's doing it just because she wants to be literary genius or something. I don't know. Or it could be that someone else used or someone else had that quote and. I so know. I couldn't find much on that. But either way, I, it, it goes back to what I was talking about that uh, Arthur Brooks mm-hmm. was talking about, that the the thing best worth living for is to be of use. The life blessed with an enthusiasm will not be dull, but a weight must go on the opposite scale to balance even the noblest enthusiasm. So she tells you how. Natural science get outside mechanical skill in a word give the child an absorbing pursuit and a fascinating hobby and you need not fear as eccentric or unworthy developments and that right there she's she's had a couple but that that also is a a strong candidate for the quote of the chapter where it it embodies at least the last couple of pages of this chapter be balanced yeah be be balanced an absorbing pursuit and a fascinating hobby. Yeah. And I'd say that's true for adults, too. You've got to find something that interests you. Well, I think more than that, it's it's you find it as a child and then it can be with you the rest of your life. True, or it grows and changes into something else. Or as a child, you didn't have the means to do it, and as an adult, you now do. Yeah. I mean, maybe your thing is to tinker with cars. 
it's kind of tough to do that until you have the means to tinker with cars. True. Well, then again, she closes with a paragraph about we must save our splendid failures. We have to keep people from becoming eccentric, becoming unbalanced. Otherwise, they'll be ineffectual for the raising of the rest of us. And I think the raising of the rest of us goes back to the rising tide and the mm-hmm. waters. and She's used that phrase now twice in this chapter, at least. I noticed it when you said it the first time earlier in the chapter. It, it struck that she's using that, that boat analogy again, or the, the rising tide. The rising tide lifts all the ships. In this chapter? Yeah, you, you brought it. You said it earlier, and, and it struck me because you said it. Because I listen to the words that you say, and I I hear them and meditate on them. I don't listen to them. the words I say. You meditate on them. <laughs> Gosh. Points. <laughs> I points don't on which column? I don't know. <laughs> points. They're points. Are, are we playing golf or basketball? I don't know. I'm good either way. <laughs> I'll decide what game I'm playing after the final score is posted. Gosh, I, I don't know. You, you read it earlier in the chapter, and it struck me. Bam, like an idea. Whatever, I'm not going to look for it now because I'm really, really tired. But I, I know it came up because it struck me. Bam. Okay. Like an idea. It strikes us, seizes us. So we're going to end with a quote. Strikes us, impresses us, seizes us, takes possession of us, rules us. So I had, I, I pulled Ooh, that's out. that's a typo. On page 34, it needs a space. Takes possession of. Uh, four lines after what is an idea. Oh, yeah. Possession of. You can tell that to the uh, Living Books Press guy. He'll love to hear that. And I say that in all sincerity. Yep. Um, so I've got four quotes that I pulled out that I thought were uh, emblematic of this chapter. The first one is on page 71. Give them opportunity and direction, and children will do the greater part of their own education. And then uh, on page 73, there's this one. If the development of character rather than the faculty is the main work of education, and if people are born, so to speak, ready-made with all the elements of their after character in them, what is education left to do? That's, that's the question that this chapter answers, I thought. So then page 75... Does it? Does it actually answer the question? Goes back to that other question that we had. Well, it, does it answer the question? It answers the question by nullifying the question. It Where answers was... the question by saying that the question is not worth asking because the premise that the question is coming from is not true. So therefore, what is what is left for education to do? Well, education is left to create the character that you thought was already completely created. Okay. So it's a, it's a circular logic. What was your other quote? Uh, Next quote was on page, was that 75? No, this one's on page 75. But alas, how many of us degrade the thing we love? Think of the multitude of innocents to be launched on the world already mutilated spiritually and morally at the hands of doting parents. It's like a whip. And then the last one I had was on page 81 which i think this was the great summary and this is the this is the one we've said a couple times now open for him some door of natural science some way of mechanical skill 
In a word, give the child an absorbing pursuit and a fascinating hobby, and you need not fear eccentric or unworthy developments. What'd you run into? There's a Play-Doh pizza cutter under my feet. It's no longer under my feet. <laughs> Chapter V Triple I: The Culture of Character. Seriously, Roman numerals have got to be the most lame way of doing any sort of numbering system ever. What makes you say that? It's ridiculous. You you have to remember so many rules for it to work right. Our base 10 system works pretty darn well. So kudos to the ancient Far East for coming up with... All right, who came up with our numeric system? Hindu Arabic numerals, set of 10 syllables. Set of 10 symbols, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 0, that represent numbers in the decimal number system. They originated in India in the 6th or 7th century and were introduced to Europe through the writings of Middle Eastern mathematicians, especially Al-Khwarizmi and Al-Kindi about the 12th century. So, thank you to Hindu and Arabic numerals for making our number systems not terrible. I thought you were just complaining about it being terrible. No, Roman numerals are terrible. Oh, okay. The number systems that we use right now make sense. Okay, I missed that part. Thank you for listening. Join the conversation with us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter.